people would like to be uh, finding their way back to their seats, that would be great. And if anyone wants to, there's lots of spare seats down here near the front. <laughs> Each week it's like five rows, six rows of nothingness here in front of me. I don't spit that far, contrary to popular belief. You're not taking the chance. <laughs> All right, it doesn't matter. You sit wherever you're comfortable. Okay, so as Brent said, uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the leaders here. And um, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark for what seems like uh, a very long time. Uh, I think we're in the third year of it. But we'll finish before the end of this year. Don't worry. I've got it all planned out. Um, <laughs> And we're up to Mark chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to read in a moment from verse 18. Let me just give you a recap of the story so far. Well, not the whole story so far, uh, where we're up to at the moment. Uh, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. It's the week before um, the crucifixion. Uh, it's the Passover week. And he went into Jerusalem and uh, he overturned the tables and drove out the money changers and uh, and the traders there, and uh, caused a bit of a stir, a lot of a stir. And, um, and so what's happening the next uh, day or so is that people are coming to him, and these are the religious leaders of the day. They're coming to him, and they're bringing him questions. They're really trying to trick him, trap him uh, into saying something which is either going to turn the crowd against him, um, and he's got a big support in the crowd, or they're going to turn the, uh, the, um, the Roman authorities against him, um, to take action against him. So that's what they're trying to do. Last time we uh, looked at this, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, two different religious groups who came to ask him questions. This time, it's going to be the Sadducees. So let's read this uh, short passage um, from verse 18 of chapter 12. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, don't know. <laughs> Jesus replied, he didn't reply that. Are you, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush? how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. All right. Let's put down there from Jesus. Um, as, I, as I said, some of you saw a video that I did uh, encouraging us to come out to all the different things this week. Put it on Facebook and Instagram. As I, as I said on that yesterday, um, some people say that if you want to uh, gather a big crowd, uh, to hear you preaching, you then preach on sex. Um, I knew one church, actually, who, who planted a church, and the first series that they did was all about sex. Um, or you can teach on the end times. 
Uh, and if you want to gather a really big crowd, preach on sex in the end times. Um, and that's what we're going to get to at the end of today. So uh, feel free to uh, text your friends and post on social media. We might, we might fill these front few rows by the end of the morning. <laughs> anyway, that was what the Sadducees question was about here. Uh, what's going to be happening in heaven, in the afterlife, um, with, with marriage and with sex? Um, in truth, they, they weren't really wanting to know because as, as it says, as Mark says at the start of this passage, they didn't even believe in heaven. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were just trying to discredit Jesus by, uh, by, by making fun of him, by saying, look, this doesn't make any sense. Um, he'd been speaking about his own resurrection from the dead that was going to come. He'd been predicting his death and saying, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. And so they're, they're like, well, you know, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense at all. So let's have a little look and see who this group were, the Sadducees, um, because they were a different group to the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, they were more conservative theologically than both of those groups. Um, and they really only took what was in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They only read that. They only took uh, what was in there as what they believed um, as Scripture. So anything that wasn't explicitly in those books, they didn't believe in. So actually, they didn't really believe in the sovereignty of God. Um, they taught that we've got free will. We're in charge of our own destiny um, through the choices we make. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. Uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Um, they, were, they, were quite, they were pretty wealthy. They were in a high social position, high social class. Um, they were kind of the clerical, priestly aristocracy of the day. And uh, historians of the day said actually they were seen as being rude and arrogant and power hungry. That's not a good way to be remembered, is it? And um, they were very closely associated with the temple and the priesthood. So when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, they just disappeared pretty much. The whole group um, collapsed. But they were around in Jesus' day. And as I said, most, most Jews in Jesus' day would have believed in, in the resurrection of the dead. They would have believed in some sort of life after death on this earth, but not the Sadducees. Um, so they're coming to Jesus and they're asking him this question to discredit him. And they come with this story about marriage and about a scenario where um, there's a woman and she marries seven different guys. Where they're coming from, really, is in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Bible, in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, we read this law that they refer to. So let's have a quick look at it so we understand where they're coming from. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verses 5 and 6 say this. Um, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son... His widow must not marry outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and shall fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from all Israel. So basically, they're saying, you know, if you, if you die and you've not got a son, to if your husband dies, but you've not got a son to carry on the family line, to carry on and to, and to have all your property, which will pass on down the family line, then what's really important is that you don't end up 
A woman doesn't end up marrying outside of the family, definitely not marrying a Gentile, needs to stay within the Jewish family. It's to preserve that family line uh, and to preserve uh, the distinctiveness of the, of the family. So they say, well, you know, it's then the responsibility of the, of the, of the guy's brother. He's got to marry her. And he, they've got to have a son. And if they have a son, then he'll carry on the line of the, the dead brother. So that's pretty much what was supposed to happen. Um, it's worth knowing that because that doesn't tend to happen today. Um, <laughs> not in many families anyway. Um, we see it first of all in Genesis chapter 38 um, with this, uh, and it, it doesn't go well in Genesis 38. And verse 8, you've got the story of Onan and, uh, and uh, the, his, brothers, uh, his brothers died. And so Judah um, says to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. So Onan got the job of, uh, of producing, of, of getting a child for his, uh, for his sister-in-law. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he swilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Didn't go well. So, just, just so you understand that story from the Old Testament, because you might be looking at that story and going, what the heck? <laughs> That's where it comes from. Um, so, you're getting bonuses all the way along here, aren't you? <laughs> so, anyway, here are the Sadducees, and they've, they've got this story with the woman who's, uh, whose husband dies, and then all the other seven die, and she's totally childless. This story actually may have come from a book in what's called the Apocrypha. These are, these are, are, are writings that didn't make it into Scripture. Um, in fact, some churches would still see the Apocrypha as, as part of Scripture, um, but, but most wouldn't. And in the book of Tobit, you get a story which is very much like this, if you ever want to look at it, Tobit chapter 3. In that story, the woman's husband and in fact, all seven of her husbands got strangled by demons on their wedding night. It's more like a Stephen King no novel than uh, scripture, but it's kind of pretty gory. But that's what happens in this book of Tobit, Tobit chapter 3. You can Google it if you want, uh, but not now. Um, anyway, this probably isn't the first time that the Sadducees have used this story because they'll probably have thought, well, you know, we're sticking to the, these scriptures, these five. But, but the Pharisees and others, they're going, they're going off on all of these other writings and, and documents and there's these stories about seven husbands and things like that. But it doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't make sense because if there's a resurrection from the dead and there's this story about the seven husbands, well, well whose husband... Is, are they, whose wife is she going to be on the resurrection? They're just thinking it's ridiculous. And uh, they're thinking rightly that there shouldn't be polygamy. So, of course, it's impossible she's going to marry all seven. The whole thing seems very absurd. And they think they've got Jesus on this question. But as we know, Jesus doesn't get stuck on questions like this. And his response to them, as we've seen, is pretty strong pretty strong. He says, you are wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That's pretty strong to say to them because these were the religious leaders of the day. It would be like to saying to Sue Warrington, you don't know anything about baking. 
or saying to Tim Nagler, you don't know anything about construction. You know, this is, their, this is their bread and butter. It's their main and plain. It's at the heart and center of their beliefs, knowing Scripture, knowing God. But Jesus is saying, you don't know these things at all. What they've done is ended up with a very narrow view of God. They've kind of shrunk God down to just nothing in comparison to who he is and the power that he has. When you don't know Scripture and when you don't know the power of God, you end up with a very small and a very impotent God if we don't know Scripture and we don't know the power of God. We too can end up with a very narrow view of God if we don't understand what Scripture teaches and if we don't know anything of the power of God. I mean, we can think, oh, you know, being, being a Christian is all about just trying to live a good life, trying to do your best. Here's all the things that we've got to do, and we'll just keep going, and yeah, life's tough, but, you know, suck it up, buttercup, and let's, let's get on with it, and let's make the best of it. We don't know Scripture and the power of God. If we don't understand that Scripture tells us how much God is with us, tells us and explains to us what God has done for us through his death, and Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, that he brings us into an eternity. He adopts us into his family, as we've been hearing about this morning. He pours out his spirit into our lives so that we have the power of God living within us. If we don't understand all of these things, then we're going to struggle. We'll, we'll be worse than the disciples were at, at Pentecost before the spirit was poured out. And what were they were like? They were weak and they were fearful. They were lost. People can be without hope. We've got to understand what Scripture tells us about who God is, what Scripture tells us about who we are in God. And we've got to know the power of God. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, we've been saying. Not just in some sort of, oh, float around the building kind of way. No, you're welcome here in our lives. Come flood this place. It's not, it's not just, you know, fill the atmosphere. Okay, it's not about the atmosphere. It's about us. <laughs> it's a great song. <laughs> I don't like that atmosphere bit. Because <laughs> it's about him filling us. It's about him dwelling in us. If we don't understand that, how are we ever going to take steps of faith? How are we ever going to do the things that God calls us to? Because God calls us to do things which are impossible. They're impossible in the world. It makes no sense. How can a church that, that has, gathers less than, you know, around 200 people, um, how can we afford to move into a building and renovate it and do all the things that we're feeling called to do without the money to do it? How can we? How can we plant into 11 other towns and cities in Atlantic Canada? And how can we then consider even getting involved in other parts of the world? You know, we've heard from Jenny this morning who talked about uh, going to the Bahamas with, with Derek, her husband, and Sue and Keith. And they've really got a passion to see something come out of that. And maybe we can get involved there. And maybe there's food banks that can come out. Who knows what it might be? Well, how can we consider all of that as one small church? We don't. If we don't know Scripture, if we don't know the power of God in us, we shrink down to things that are feasible, to things that are doable, to things that we can manage because we've only got a few hours a week to do this because of all these other things. But God's called us to far more than that. God's called us to far more than that. 
It, it can just be foolishness otherwise, but not if we know the Scriptures and the power of God. So on this question of what happens after we die, the Sadducees, they've got a really limited view. People joke and that's, they say, well, that's why they were sad, you see. Because they use their very clever logic to make something just seem ridiculous, to make something that God said seem like it's ridiculous. And Jesus says, you don't get it. You don't understand God. You don't get the enormity of what heaven will be like. You're thinking about silly situations and who's, whose wife and whose husband will this be? And Jesus is like, it's saying, get real. This is, this is eternal glory we're talking about here. What are you even talking about? He stresses to them that the resurrection is a fact. It's true. It's going to happen. And he doesn't just argue it from himself. He doesn't say, look, I'm going to show you in a few days that the resurrection is true because I'm going to rise from the dead. And he doesn't argue it from others. He doesn't say, hey, you might have heard about Nicodemus. I went and I raised him from the dead. He doesn't argue on those basis with them. He got, Lazarus, not Nicodemus, well done. God, someone's listening. Yeah. <laughs> Nicodemus was uh, someone else in John's Gospel. I put Nicodemus in my notes. <laughs> he doesn't do that, thankfully. He goes from the Torah. He goes from the Old Testament. He goes from the very thing that they base their beliefs on. Sometimes it's helpful to do that when we're talking with people who have got questions or who aren't sure who, or who don't believe. It's good to go from where they're at. Paul did it, didn't he? When he uh, was in Athens, he, he started quoting Athenian poetry to them. I mean, why was he doing You might think, why is he doing that? Why isn't he going to Scripture? They didn't know Scripture. So he quotes Athenian poetry to them because that's what they understood. Jesus um, quotes Scripture to the Sadducees. If we're talking to a Muslim, you know, it, it's not a bad idea, and I don't hear me wrong on this, but we can, we can, it's good to know something of what the Quran says and start at that point and say, but there's so much more that you and maybe not understanding. Or if someone is a scientist, start with something from science and then go on and take it from there if we understand that without just discrediting things. Start from where they're at. That's what Jesus does. He, he quotes Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 and he talks about when Moses encounters God at the, at the, the bush that was burning but not uh, burning. And, uh, and he, he says, look, Remember how God spoke to Moses and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he points out it's present tense. It's I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is, God is saying, here's a promise to you. This is the promise. This is the covenant, Moses, that I gave to Abraham and I gave to Isaac and I gave to Jacob. And it's still for you today and it's still unfulfilled. Now, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are with God and are still alive and have been raised, to, raised from the dead, then this promise to them is still alive and is still valid. If they're dead, Jesus is saying, well, what's the point in the promise? God doesn't make promises and covenants to insects, which are just alive for a few days. 
the promise is still something that is being held onto. He says, um, you know, God isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. We see something more of it, because we have the, the four scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see something more of it in Hebrews 11, verse 13, talking about all these people. And again, the writer to the Hebrews is talking about Abraham and Abel and Enoch and others and Moses. And he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised in their lifetime. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting them they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they're looking for a country of their own. They've been thinking of the country they left that have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, and think, look at the tense here, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So there's something still for them. It's not like they were alive and they died and it's all about us now. It's for them. They will come into the promises that God gave them. So Jesus is saying, look, even in your scriptures, even in the Old Testament, even in just the Old Testament law, the Torah, you can see something about the resurrection here. It's not explicit. It's just implied, but it's there. It's there. And there's other things that he potentially could have said as well. He could have said, you should know the power of God from creation, from the creation story in the Torah. You should know the power of God from the story of deliverance through the Red Sea for the Israelites. You should know the power of God and something of the resurrection because it says that Enoch walked with God and, and he, was, uh, he walked faithfully with God but was then no more because God took him away. Well, it doesn't imply that God's getting rid of Enoch. God, oh, he was walked faithfully with God and God took him away. That implies he's still with God in glory. He didn't die. So Jesus could have said any number of those things, but the resurrection is there in even the Torah. But we have even more. We have even more because we, Jesus doesn't just announce the resurrection. He is the resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. So how confident are we that we've got eternal life ahead of us? How, how much do we think about it day by day? How much do we go through our life and think, but we have an eternity ahead of us? To be honest, some Christians doubt it. And that leaves them fearful. It leaves them fearful of death. And actually it means their focus is very much on earthly things on this life. But we can be confident of the resurrection from the dead for us and eternal life because we can be confident that Jesus himself rose from the dead. People have set out to write books. People who are skeptical have set out, I'm going to write a book to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, to show that it was all a fake, to show that there was some uh, either you know, deception going on on behalf of the disciples or that the authorities stole, the, took the body away and whatever. They went out to do that and many of those have actually come to realize the most plausible thing by far is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That is the most convincing thing. There's, there's a lot of evidence that you can read uh, to be convinced of that. But if Jesus rose from the dead, we can be sure of that too. Paul encourages the Corinthians of that in 1 Corinthians 
15. Let's just read a few of those verses, because he's encouraging them. He's saying, come on, you can believe that there is a resurrection from the dead. You can be convinced that Christ raised. He says, if it's preached that Christ's been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he didn't raise him, then in fact the dead aren't raised. And if the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And also those who've fallen asleep or died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. And then he goes on and he, and he says in verse 29, Now, if there is no resurrection, what will we do? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? And if the dead aren't raised at all, why are people baptized for them? We'll not get into that. And as for, <laughs> as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's saying, if there's not confidence and hope of eternal life, what's the point of doing all of this? What's the point of our Christian life? What's the point of gathering here on a Sunday morning? What's the point of serving God? What's the point of giving our finances? What's the point of giving our time? What's the point of going and planting churches and, and bringing missions? Because we might as well just eat and enjoy ourselves and drink and enjoy ourselves because in a few days or weeks or months or years' time, we're all going to die. And we might as well just make the most of our life here. And if you don't believe there's an eternal life, then that's what you're going to do. And if you're not convinced, even as a Christian, that's what you're going to do. You're going to focus just on this life. You're going to focus on just getting the best thing as you can. I want the best house and I want to go on the best vacations and I want to have the most fun that I can and whatever it involves. And yet I might have Jesus in my life somewhere and he's kind of my insurance. But at the moment, you know, I'm focusing on this life. And that's what people do. We need to be convinced of this, brothers and sisters. We need to be convinced of an eternal life. Because if, we d if we're not, we're not going to be able to be effective. We're not going to be able to serve God. We're not going to be devoted because we'll fear that we're just going to miss out on earthly pleasures. So, what will heaven be like? Because it's one thing to say, oh yes, there'll be a heaven. But what will it be like? Because let's try and understand it. It's not just an extension of our earthly life. It's an entirely new dimension. We've already heard from people this morning about saying, oh, you know, life's not easy. Adoption in God isn't easy. Adoption in God's family isn't easy. It can be a struggle. But there's a coming time when all of those things that are struggles and difficulties will be worked out. To be said, our life, our troubles now are light and momentary. Carry on in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks a bit about what it's going to be like. He says in verse 40, There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon has another, 
the stars another. Each star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection from the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's going to die. And it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. The things that we struggle with in our weakness are going to be powerful. The things that will die and fade and fall apart are going to be perfect. And they're they're not going to die. The things that are dishonorable are going to be glorious. Revelation 21, similar kind of thing. Revelation 21 speaks of how there will be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain because God is making everything new. So everything that we struggle with and battle with on this earth is going to give way to heavenly things which aren't going to be the same and aren't going to happen. Earthly conditions give way to heavenly conditions. So Jesus says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage because things are going to be completely different. We need a totally different category to get our heads around what he's saying. And what Jesus says is they'll be like the angels in heaven. Thing is, we can't imagine what that's like. Because how can we compare? We don't, what, what it, it'll be like the angels in heaven. What does that even mean? It's really hard to imagine what something's like before you get to it. I mean, can a baby in the womb understand and imagine what life is like outside of the womb? They can't imagine it. All that they know is life in the womb. They can't imagine this whole realm of life outside of the room. Can anyone who's living in Africa or the UK imagine how much snow Fredericton gets in the winter? You can't imagine it. You can hear about it, but you don't really get it until you're here. And this is an area that the enemy can get in. And the enemy does get in. So let's address some of the lies that the enemy will speak to us. And I think pretty much everyone will have had these lies spoken to them by the enemy. The enemy wants to persuade us that heaven is not better than here. The enemy wants to persuade us it's going to be worse. And it's going to be worse in a number of different areas. So, the enemy will take this verse that Jesus says about being like the angels in heaven. And the enemy will tell us, do you know what? You are going to have eternity in heaven And you're just going to be like an angel. You'll be on a cloud and you'll be playing this harp or whatever and it'll just be boring. It will be terrible. Can you imagine anything worse? And we get this impression of what heaven's (laughs) going to be like. Oh, can you imagine eternity? It's just going to be dull. It's just going to be boring. And then, you know, and then the opposite of that. People say, oh, hell sounds a lot more fun. Seriously? Hell sounds a lot more fun, but that's what the enemy tells us. That's what the enemy tells unbelievers a lot. And then we read this verse about there being no marriage in heaven. And so people who are happily married will say, I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know know if I want to go to heaven if there's no marriage in heaven. If it means I'm not married to my spouse. You know, people who've been with their spouse for 
many, many years, and they just can't imagine things without them. And, or people whose, whose spouses have passed on. And then they think, oh, but there's not even going to be marriage in heaven, so I'm not going to be with them. And the enemy can say, well, that doesn't sound very appealing, does it? Some people think, say things like, oh, well, you know, you're so much more... I, I just imagine when we get to heaven, I'm going to be sort of standing at the back of this big crowd of people and you're going to be up there and I'm not going to be anywhere near you. And, you. and you feel that you're going to be losing something. Others get concerned about the thought that there'll be no sex in heaven. Will, 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 be, will we just be sexless? Will, be, will we be like neutered? And, and so we, we think, well, hang on, sure, this seems, this seems strange. There's no sex in heaven. But on this earth, everyone else is going around and, and enjoying relationships and different relationships and enjoying all these different things. And, and we're supposed to be celibate. Or we're supposed to be monogamous. And then when we get to heaven, there won't even be sex. Great. <laughs> this, this is what, now maybe this is just what I think. <laughs> this is what people think. I'm confident on this one. This is what people think. Some people think, will we even recognize people in heaven? You know, will we even recognize each other? I mean, I don't recognize people anyway, so anything's <laughs> a win for me. That's your hope for heaven. <laughs> That's my hope. <laughs> I'm going to recognize people. <laughs> this earthly body will have passed. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's address some of these issues just before we finish. Firstly, of course we will know each other. God creates us for relationship. Relationship with him, yes, but relationship with each other as well. Jesus is just about to go on and say that the two greatest commandments are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're to love our neighbors, oh, and, he, and he tells a parable about that, doesn't he, about who your neighbor is. It's, it's even the people who you don't like, who hate you. How much more do we love our families? How much more do we love our church families? as well, and our, our human families. Loving involves deep relationship with people. And we see that in, in the letters that Paul writes. He, he writes, just read through his letter to the Thessalonians, his first one. He, he goes on and on and on about how he's missing them. He longs to see them again. And then he connects it with when Jesus returns. In chapter 4, he says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So people who've died. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. So he's not just coming on his own. He brings those who have died. According to the Lord's word, we tell you, those of us who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. We won't be ahead of them. For God himself, the Lord himself, will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So Paul's saying, we, we're not just going to meet Jesus when he returns. We're going to meet everyone else. We're going to meet all the people who we've known who have died. We'll be with them together. So we'll recognize them and we'll be with them again. I mean, God created 
us to know each other. God created, in Eden, God created Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. You could say, well, Adam was in perfect relationship with God at that point. It was before the fall, but God said, no, you need relationship with others. So he created Eve and then others, family members, friends. So we will recognize people. We will be with them again. Okay, so what about this question of marriage? Will there be marriage in heaven? Will there be sex in heaven? Well, it does seem that this passage is clearly saying no. But the Bible doesn't teach us that there won't be marriage in heaven. The Bible doesn't teach us that there won't be marriage in heaven. The Bible actually says there will be marriage in heaven, and that marriage will be between Christ and his bride, the church. We'll all be part of that marriage. Paul links human marriage to the higher reality that it mirrors. So let's try and get this. Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 31, He's talking about marriage. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then he says, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So basically, marriage, human marriage, is a signpost towards something even better which is coming. It's a signpost to a greater reality. So, we have a human marriage, and it, it points the way towards what it will be like with Christ and the church. And it's hard for us to get our head around, but it's a greater thing. It's even better than marriage. And it's a signpost. So once we get to the destination, you don't need the signpost anymore. Once you get to a destination, you don't need a signpost to point something out. So we all long for perfect marriages, don't we? We all long for perfect relationships, and we don't have them but that's exactly what we will have in heaven. That marriage with Jesus will be so completely satisfying, even the best earthly marriage isn't going to be as fulfilling. So the purpose of marriage isn't to replace heaven, to be something better than heaven. It's to prepare us for heaven. I mean, Debbie is my wife. She's my best friend. She's my closest sister in Christ on earth. Are we going to become more distant in heaven? Of course we're not. We're going to become closer because there won't be any sin which messes up the relationship. God gave us into relationships. He's not going to change his mind on it. He's not going to say, oh, it's not good for someone to be alone, but actually in heaven you can be alone. You'll just be on a cloud on your own all day and you'll not be with anyone else. <laughs> Why would God do that? Why would God say it's not good for it? It's not good for it just to be me and me and me and, and them, it's not good for it to just be God and us. It's good to have other relationships. God doesn't pull it back. He gives more. So all of our relationships will be better than they were and they are here on earth. I can't imagine anyone's going to understand me better in heaven or that I'll want to know anyone else more than Debbie. And in our marriages here, as we get closer to God, we get closer to each other. And surely the same is going to be true in heaven. We might be business partners, different people, or we might be sports partners. And, and that, that partnership might end, but it doesn't mean the relationship ends. It doesn't mean the friendship ends. And just because we won't have marriage in the same way in heaven doesn't mean that relationship will end. In fact, 
it will be deeper. The same with our children as well. And God doesn't replace something in his original creation with something worse. He replaces it with something better. So, will there be sex? Well, I think there will be in terms of us maintaining our genders. We'll still be male and female. Um, if there was marriage in heaven, it would make sense that there would be sex because there was before the fall. But Jesus makes it clear people won't be married to each other. But, as we've just said, God doesn't take something here on earth and then give us something worse in heaven. So we can, we can confidently expect that the kind of intimacy and the pleasure that might be found in sex is going to be fulfilled in heaven in some sort of higher form. C.S. Lewis described it like this. He said, imagine a small boy who's told that the highest bodily pleasure that you can have is the sexual act. And he says, well, do you eat candy when you're doing that then? And, and he's told, no, no, you don't, eat, you don't eat candy. There's no candy involved. And he might think, oh, he might think that's a big loss. Because to him, that's maybe the best pleasure that he's getting is eating candy. And he can't imagine something that's greater than that. And he can't imagine something that's greater than that that doesn't involve eating candy. He doesn't understand that when lovers have something so much better to occupy themselves with, they're not even thinking about missing out on eating candy, or chocolate, or whatever it might be. C.S. Lewis says, the boy knows the pleasures of chocolate, he says, or candy, but he doesn't know the greater pleasure, which means you're not worried about eating chocolate at that time. And he says, we're in the same position. We know the sexual life, but we don't know, apart from in glimpses, the other thing, which in heaven just won't leave room for that because there's something so much better. There's something so much greater. So whatever pleasures life holds for us now, we can be sure that there'll be greater pleasures in heaven in every form, physically, emotionally, mentally. We can confidently expect God's going to be planning a great future for us, a great heaven for us, even if we don't know all the details. So let's be encouraged by it. Because we don't need to spend all of our time and effort focusing on the 70 years that we might hopefully have on earth, making sure that we don't miss out. Because that's what we'll end up doing. The pleasures we have here are God's blessings, for sure. But they point towards something so much greater. Let's not be like the Sadducees. Let's know what Scripture teaches. Let's understand it and know what we can expect. And let's know the power of God in our lives so we're not in the same position that they were in. Jesus said, you lack so much. You lack so much. But he's won for us so much. He's won for us an inheritance which is so much greater than any of us can imagine. So much more glorious. Let's walk on, even through the pain and the sadness and the mourning and the sickness and all that we face here on earth. Let's walk on with hope. With hope of an eternity which is so much more glorious. And with confidence knowing that the sacrifices and the struggles of this life will very soon fade away. 
They're light and momentary troubles. And we're going to know pleasures evermore in God's presence. Why don't we pray? The band might want to come back up. We're going to sing about that great time and celebrate that. But Father God, we thank you. Why don't we stand together? Father God, we thank you, Lord, for, for, for our life here on earth. We thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for the church. We thank you for relationship with each other. We thank you for relationship with you. We thank you we can know you and we can know your Holy Spirit and we can know your comfort and help in our struggles. But Lord, we thank you most of all this morning that we have an eternal hope. We have an eternity ahead of us that means when this life is done, whenever that is for us, we will be in your presence and we will know so many pleasures. Not just the pleasure of knowing you, although that will infuse everything else, but so many other pleasures and delights that we will see. Pleasures of your creation and glory. Pleasures in our physical lives. Pleasures emotionally and, 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 and pleasures in our minds. So many pleasures which you have for us. Because you create us to enjoy you and to worship you and to love you. And we praise you we have that, Lord. Encourage us, stir us. Give us confidence, Lord. Give us confidence in that future so that we may serve you here on earth with all ourselves and all our fullness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.